The dry grasslands of the South Island's Mackenzie country are an iconic New Zealand location, but the tough and unforgiving land is undergoing a transformation. Insight investigates the future of the Mackenzie, where the tussock is giving way to ryegrass and where the sheep are slowly being replaced by dairy cows. The place does something to you, doesn't it? It, it gets you, as a New Zealander, it gets you. It's such a wonderful area, that area of space and the high mountains, the Alps behind, the beautiful lakes and rivers. Yeah, it's important to me personally, but I know it's important to lots of New Zealanders as well. The Mackenzie country, the geologists describe it as an intermontane basin, a landscape of mountains and glacial outwash plains. The soil scientists describe the ground as depleted, stony, thin, and prone to erosion. The weather office reports arctic frosts in winter, freezing winds from the south, and sweltering days in summer. Despite those challenging elements, some farmers believe there are fortunes to be made, but in a responsible way. A wonderful landscape, and that's exactly what New Zealand uh, is about. There's, there's, a, there's a wetland down there which is fenced, there's a hillside over there that's covenanted, uh, but in, in the middle here is a, is, is a sustainable economic use of the land, and that's what drives New Zealand Incorporated. I'm Graham Acton, and for this insight I travelled to the dry tussock and grasslands of the Mackenzie Basin to join farmers and others wanting to know more about the possibilities and implications of dairying in the high country and the move to irrigation. This is not about turning the Mackenzie country, the Upper Waitaki Basin, into, into some sort of uh, green paddock. Dr William Rolleston is Federated Farmers' National Vice President. This is about balance. This is about uh, taking opportunities in some places and, and uh, preserving the, the natural landscape in others. The Mackenzie country has been farmed since the earliest days of European settlement in the South Island, more than 150 years ago. It's a challenging farming environment where sturdy merino and crossbred sheep have provided a living to farmers not only fighting the climate, but also the rabbits and the weeds. The majority of the Mackenzie country remains in large pastoral dryland farms, either freehold or leased by the Crown. In the last five years or so, some of these farmers have been drawn to the massive profits being made by sheep farmers in other parts of the South Island who have brought in irrigation systems and dairy cows. William Rolleston's view is that there are many past misunderstandings between groups involved in the Mackenzie country. He believes farmers have been unfairly maligned when really they have the difficult task of balancing the needs of the environment as well as their checkbooks. There's a saying among farmers, it's hard to be green when you're not in the black. What we see is that farmers are are pushed between two poles. At, at one point there's the pests and weeds that they're having to deal with. On the other side uh, you've got the environmental movements who are trying to, to restrict the sort of things that they can do. It really does stand out to me that, we, that you can farm within limits. Farmers have always been environmentalists mm. and farmers aren't just out there to to rape and pillage the land. They actually are part of the landscape and, they, and they, they care about the landscape. So I think that is really important and I think it's, it's really been a, a big change for us. We've, while farmers have been environmentalists, we've actually started talking about the environment and I think it's time the environmental organisations started talking about the economy because there is a halfway ground there. Federated Farmers is taking a group to inspect properties west and south of Twizel, in the heart of the Mackenzie. 
On the road in one of the farm trucks, Ben Albury, the owner of nearby Glencairn Station, explains how he feels about the changes happening in a region where he spent most of his life. Oh, absolutely. I just don't think that we've actually looked at all the, the, the options here yet. You know, we're, we're moving away from pastoralism, you know, maybe 10 years ago when subsidies went and things, and these guys are doing this. Is, is this the best? Like if it was cleaned off and a, a big resort golf course or something was put in, maybe that's a real dream. But you know, have we really sort of looked at what we could do? And, um, and is it appropriate that everybody's wound right into just primary production should there be a because everybody I know has got a little bit of tourism should we be sort of you know where does it all fit together and I don't know where the answer is but yeah this worries me to the extent that we haven't really got a grip of what we're doing yet to, to things and my understanding is having been involved with the regional council for a while that we're probably 10 years behind when what we're measuring in the water it happened 10 years ago and so I, you know, I, you know, I just I'm just kind of nervous you know I don't think this is bad but I I don't understand it, and that's frightening. And Ben Albury poses a question being put by many in the high country. Who's really responsible for the future of the land? Why can't, you know, Forest and Bird and, and the local golf club or everybody put in a share and actually manage this thing? You know, if, if, if a golf club had a piece out here and they did develop something, and at scale it's a problem. If it was your own garden at home with half an acre, you'd have it highly productive. Irrigation in the Mackenzie raises two vital issues, the protection of water quality and the protection of the current landscape. For the landowners, the real question is not just meeting the costs of those issues, but also the costs of meeting society's wider expectations regarding protection of the environment. Forest and Bird has spent years fighting for the retention of the natural landscapes and ecosystems in the region, taking legal action against individual and corporate farmers over their plans to irrigate land. Forest and Bird's Canterbury West Coast Field Officer Jen Miller has a stark view of the problems posed by the Mackenzie. Something has to be done. The question is, is, is the only solution to this problem ploughing it up and planting exotic species and putting lots of water on it and cows? Mm. Is that a solution? I, I don't think so. It's, it, it's sort of pragmatic at, at this moment in time when... when, um, when Dairy prices are so good and the land prices are relatively low, so there is some obvious, obviously a business case to, to conversion. But is that, is that for the long term good? It's, it's, it's a really complex issue. It's, it's, a, it's a sort of issue that we have to deal with. Do we value this landscape? Do we value the last of our Indigenous plants and animals, does, does that have an intrinsic value over and above an economic value of that land? And if so, how do you, how do you, how do you solve that problem? How do you seek some balance around allowing landowners to, to maintain a livelihood and protecting the values that are important, that people say are important, you know, if you if you, we know from our Mackenzie campaign that we've got huge support for, for, we don't want to see greening of the landscape. This government says seeking some solution is important. The RMA gives um, value to the ecological, social environment, over and, not over and above, but as well as economic development. The protection of our natural, physical, natural and physical resources. There's, 
there's all the rhetoric, there is the there's the legislation. It just seems an enormous absence of coming together and working out a solution, which I think there is one. Mm. It won't be cheap. In May last year, there was a possible breakthrough in the long-running battle between farmers and the Green Lobby over land use in the Mackenzie country. After two years of discussions between interested parties, the Mackenzie Agreement was released, designed to bring opponents together with the idea of setting up a trust to administer and help manage about 270,000 hectares of land between Burke's Pass and Linders Pass. It would set aside up to 100,000 hectares in a trade-off for up to 26,000 hectares of irrigated land and thousands of hectares devoted to intensive shed-based cubicle-style dairying. An environmental consultant and the head of the Ecologic Foundation think tank, Guy Salmon, helped steer the discussions. Well, it was a collaborative process, which means that we got all the people that had an interest in the issues, uh, 23 organisations altogether, and it was done by consensus, which in effect meant that any individual organisation could exercise a veto on the outcome, and that really galvanised everybody into listening very carefully to each other's points of view and trying to find common ground. And over a series of meetings over a couple of years, we gradually achieved, I think, a very clear and well-articulated way forward for the solving the conflicts in the Mackenzie. And it was a remarkable achievement in the sense that the people at the beginning were very far apart from each other, and there was a very wide spectrum. If you think about a political spectrum from left to right, you couldn't have got it much wider than the people in this room. Not all major irrigators in the region signed the agreement, but it was supported by more than 20 signatories, including Dairy New Zealand, Federated Farmers, Forest and Bird and the Fish and Game Council. Dr Salmon says the process helped clarify what irrigation in the region may mean. At the root of the Mackenzie issue was a community that was really struggling to survive without bringing in some irrigation. And um, for those who felt passionate about the landscape and the biodiversity of the Mackenzie, uh, irrigation presented itself as a threat. And so what we achieved as we worked forward um, in this dialogue process, this consensus building process, was to get an understanding that there was scope for some uh, irrigation in the Mackenzie. And in a sense, irrigation itself becomes a, a source of revenue which you can use for conservation. Um, if you think of a typical Mackenzie Country sheep station, uh, only a small part of it needs to be irrigated to um, provide those benefits. It just secures the viability of the business, takes the pressure off the rest of the land, provides a bit of revenue which can be used for fencing and rabbit control. Um, and so getting everybody to see that was, I think, a big step. And then a second big step was the recognition that um, conservation in the Mackenzie can't just be achieved by um, stopping development um, because we're really talking about restoration of the original landscape, that this involves the exclusion of grazing, it involves the control of rabbits and the control of weeds, including wildling pines, um, the cost of doing this is quite a significant thing. Um, and therefore, um, we agreed that the best way of doing it was not to just um, impose controls through the district plan, but rather uh, to get a source of funding that would provide um, 
financial wherewithal for people to look after the land and to set aside these areas uh, for conservation. And so that's where the legislation and the trust becomes uh, very important. And um, my sense is that the government will follow through on that. They've been convinced by the case which the community has made. The Mackenzie Country Trust would administer and fund the agreement once the government passes the appropriate legislation and stumps up with its part of the more than $3 million a year needed to fund it. The trustees would be appointed by the government, as well as community groups and local councils who sign the agreement. Some of the costs would be compensating landowners who set aside part of their property. Twelve months later, and not a lot has happened, although the Minister of Conservation, Nick Smith, says the process has already been a big step forward, simply by bringing the Green Lobby and the Farming Lobby closer together. But Dr Smith warns that the process is a protracted one. The Mackenzie Accord uh, proposes the establishment of a trust that plays almost a local version of, of QE2. I'm not necessarily opposed to that. Uh, we've seen in other areas of New Zealand where there's been tensions between uh, the development of agricultural industries and issues of uh, protecting native biodiversity. In Banks Peninsula there's been a specific trust. Uh, that trust is being set up on the basis of having particularly covenanting powers to make sure that if there are agreements reached and money is provided that uh, there are commitments for those into perpetuity. It would require legislation for the trust to be able to perform those roles. I'm open-minded about it, uh, but equally much stress is that, uh, yes, I've worked on the proposals, uh, yes, DOC has, uh, but there have been no decisions by Cabinet. Uh, either over the funding or the regulatory tools that are proposed in the McKinsey Agreement, and until such time as Cabinet has considered uh, the proposals and made a decision, they remain just that. The Labour and Green Party have both criticised the agreement as being vague and more about development than conservation. And while the inception of the Trust hangs in the balance, other visions for the future of conservation in the area continue to be debated. One of the most popular is the concept of a so-called dry land park, a conservation area stretching from near Mount Cook south to the floor of the Mackenzie Basin near Twizel. The Mackenzie Guardians describe themselves as a group of concerned New Zealanders, using their time and energies to lobby for a Mackenzie country free from intensive farming. They are, perhaps not surprisingly, big supporters of the dryland park concept as a part of a strategy to protect the area. The group's spokesperson is Rosalie Snoyink. It's a real, real serious concern about the landscape change. I mean, the Mackenzie Basin is really a unique and valued landscape. And when you look at what's happened, say even in the last 10 years, there's been, um, you know, with the introduction of dairy into the uh, southern end of the basin. And we're really concerned that um, that doesn't continue right through the basin and that we lose that wonderfully unique area. A landscape planner, Di Lucas, advises the Guardians. We have a real problem in our high country, that there's heaps of protection of upper slopes and, you know, the, the steep parts, and there's a real lack of protection and public accessibility and everything of the, of the flats, so that the moraine and the outwash and so on, and those important landscapes, they're not in national parks and things. And I think some farmers would actually be pleased to be a part of the dry land. Those that don't want to convert, there are farmers that are you know, wanting to maintain the land and, and better protect it. A Mackenzie Dryland Park is also appealing to Forest and Bird's Jen Miller. Forest and Bird promotes the idea of a drylands park where you would use some of those properties through the tenure review process to get good 
amounts of land set aside with values from, as I said, from Auraki down to Benmore, say between um, Tekapo and Pukaki, for instance. So you, you, you're protecting this quite large piece of land. And that could be a mix of things. It could be some of the land returning to the Crown and being managed by the Department of Conservation. It could be through covenants. It could be through direct purchase. There are many ways in which you can do that. It's a multifaceted approach. Not only are you protecting those areas, but you're, it's also an, an, a fantastic resource in terms of tourism and public recreation. The Conservation Minister, Nick Smith, says he's not opposed to the notion of a drylands park in the Mackenzie. But in my view, there are some other steps that we need to work our way through, uh, and that is that there needs to be some balanced trade-offs, and that is where the Mackenzie Trust that is proposed under uh, the agreement uh, may be a vehicle for getting to such a goal. I also think we need to be cautious of the notion that conservation gains can only be achieved by the Crown owning more and more areas. And where this government uh, takes a view that with the covenant method that is recommended in the Mackenzie Accord, you're able to, either for recreation but also for conservation areas, able to achieve conservation gains without the, the state having to own everything. The Department of Conservation recently appointed a partnership manager, Barry Hanson who aims to work alongside private landowners and other interested groups to protect the special aspects of the landscape. He says Doc's view is that realistically a park in the Mackenzie simply wouldn't work, but there are alternatives. Actually the issues in the Mackenzie country in terms of protection and the values that, that um, New Zealanders want protected can be achieved through a whole range of complementary mechanisms and they include you know, district plan and regional planning activities around landscape protection, uh, how land is managed through lease arrangements and licences, tenure review outcomes where some land comes across to the Crown, namely the department, to manage, and then how a Mackenzie Trust-type organisation might be able to incentivise and manage across land that doesn't come across to the Crown. So a whole lot of stakeholders with a common objective around landscape and biodiversity, but also allowing appropriate development. While the dryland park idea currently seems to be a non-starter, its advocates maintain it is at least a part of a viable vision for the Mackenzie, where in the absence of any other working blueprint, farmers are still moving ahead with plans for irrigation development and dairying. One such farmer is Casey Stratton, who farms two stations near Twizel, Ohau Downs and Glenary Downs. His plans for a dairy conversion using large sheds to house thousands of cows has been controversial, and he's still waiting for water rights to move ahead with the enormous project. Mr Z. Stratton is also waiting for a conclusion to an ongoing action in the Environment Court after he initially had his conversion project rejected. He explains to those on the Federated Farmers Tour that the initial rejection of the project meant he completely revised the figures. Since then we've done, we've done all of that and done whatever we could and, and we appealed the decision, the decline decision and gone into the process of mediation, which is, you know, we've had four mediation days with about 30 people around the table, which was, which is quite unheard of, like this is quite large. Spent in the process the last 18 months, 18 months, probably about a half a million dollars on, on, you know, answering the questions for mediation, and, you know, going back and spending more money and photo simulations and 
whatever we could. KCZ Stratton now aims to have fewer cows, but with those cows producing more milk. What he's planning is still a massive dairying operation, involving thousands of dairy cows housed in enormous sheds and being fed silage and other feed brought onto the site. Each cow would produce around 700 kilograms of milk solids per year. That's 1 million kilos per shed per year. And a gross annual turnover in the vicinity of $20 million. Eye-watering sums. And as a farming model, it may make financial sense, but as a system of farming in the Mackenzie country, it is open to wide-ranging criticism, from ecological damage to just being plain ugly and out of place. Also in combat with forest and bird in the environment court is Murray Valentine, whose Simons Pass station is another potential candidate for irrigation development. After spending tens of thousands on lawyers to fight his corner in the courts, he's sceptical of the collaborative approach. I don't think people generally take account of the other, the other side. It's, it's very easy for people to say you should have a collaborative approach, but it's very hard actually to enter into negotiations. We're finding it very hard to provide the, the compromise, an economic compromise that they can accept. And we went into the mediation that we went into on that basis. I said to them that it's difficult for us, because of the way our, our farm is sited, to take bits of it off. We can take small bits of it off, but we can't take half of it out and be economic. Our position is hard to compromise on. We'd like to compromise if we could find an economic way to do it. They can only compromise by saying, yes, you can do it. And so I'd like to be able to do a deal with the forest and bird people, but I know that'll be difficult. Not, not because they'll be difficult, it's just that it will be difficult because it's a difficult problem to solve. Also on the Federated Farmers Field Day, Labor's agriculture spokesman Damien O'Connor, the only government MP to accept an invitation to attend. He is keen to discuss possible Mackenzie management solutions, and in the truck travelling between sites, he and local farmer Ben Aubrey tried to see if they could find common ground. We have to try and, and develop a vision. You know, yep. If we just sit back and let the direction be dictated by you know, what happens day to day and you know, market forces, then we'll end up in a blind alley. Is it possible, it's a real dream, but is from a politician's point of view to say, why doesn't every organisation come up with this vision, like forest and bird feeds, everybody, and they, they all come up with their vision and put it in and just see how close we are? Well, I, I, I agree. There's and no the, reason don't even put that them in the that shouldn't room. happen. Hmm. And I guess the minute you put all those people into a committee, then they're there to represent their groups. Often they're reluctant to, to disclose all their, their, yep. their vision, I guess. So they probably should do that separately and then give it to like an arbitrator I guess. Um, well even if they all got in the room I think we'd probably find we're so close that would you need an arbitrator? Well I, I, I mean well the question is if, if your theory was right why sh why haven't we got a solution in the Mackenzie already? The so-called vision question is also close to Forest and Bird's heart with Jen Miller concerned that the vision captured in the Mackenzie agreement may soon be an opportunity lost. I think there was a commitment by the parties that sat around the table and the parties that signed it. You know, these are federated farmers, individual landowners, tourism operators, community board, forest and bird, fish and game. Mackenzie Guardian's a group 
concerned about the protection of landscapes in the Mackenzie. It was a heated and robust forum, but I, I genuinely believe that there was a real desire to, for something to be achieved through that process, so it's disappointing. And for the Mackenzie Guardians, Di Lucas warns of the consequences if the agreement remains just a proposal. The longer it takes to get some traction in implementing it, the higher the risk because parties change and, and you, lo- you not only lose the momentum, but some of the players will change. But I would like to see people taking up the spirit of it in this process. We agreed and can we progress that in, in some ways to show that intent is carried forward. But while the wider vision is debated, there are many in the high country who are firm in their beliefs that intensive farming using irrigation is simply a natural and necessary development in the region and should be put into place without delay. There are others on the land, however, who reserve judgment. Get in. Welcome here. Mackenzie farmer Ben Aubrey knows the potential of his land and how it could be a gold mine under more irrigation. But like many in the Mackenzie, he remains wary. It's all, it's all new and, um, and uh, a little bit alien to me still. It's, um... it's, there's a huge change in the environment, there's a huge change in the, in the way of farming and it seems to me to be wagering on, on the future of the farm. And... Yeah, it's huge money. It's... It's all or nothing. And while the stakes build in the Mackenzie country, the debate over land use priorities rests largely in the lap of the government. Under some pressure now to make the Mackenzie Agreement a reality, before, in some eyes, it may be too late. And then if you add that kind of thing into the white into the Waitaki, where you've got these really, really stony, extraordinarily free-draining soils, and they don't even know where the water is going, I mean, there's just... I just feel we're on a... Yeah, I just feel really anxious about what the next 10 or 20 years is going to mean in terms of the water quality, the landscapes, the values down there. If this sort of ad hoc, poorly thought through management prevails and really there is no need, really, you know, this is a a discrete landscape that's quite geographically defined. The government says that it's really concerned about it and wants to do something just feel like it's all happening. It's just been allowed to go on, even though the rhetoric is about protection. And for Guy Salmon, the architect and one of the driving forces behind the McKenzie Agreement, the next step is clear. The agreement must become law. And whoever's the next government will have an important role in terms of making sure that legislation goes through in accordance with the McKenzie Agreement and funding it. We've agreed the goal and we've agreed how to get there. And, you know, there's a lot of goals floating around New Zealand where nobody's got any idea how they're going to achieve them. Uh, in the Mackenzie country, we do know how to achieve it, and the whole community's agreed on it, and we just need to take the necessary steps now to deliver. I'm Graham Acton, and that's Insight for this week. If you'd like to contact us, you can send an email to insight at radionz.co.nz or send us a tweet at rnz underscore insight. I wrote and presented that program. It was produced by Philippa Tolley with technical production by Jeremy Veal.